0: This is the word of the Lord from Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Megan. A magnificent passage deserves magnificent reading and received it. So as John mentioned, my name is Dave Bast. Uh, I'm a member here at Fifth, and I echo his feelings that it's so good to be together. Nothing against virtual worship. It's better than nothing. And I speak as somebody who spent 23 years working primarily in sharing the gospel online through various platforms. But to, to be together, you know, our God is not a virtual God. He really is with us. And in uh, our own embodiment of Christ, he reaches out to us uh, in comfort and love. So <clears throat> that's my little word. John did ask me to jump in. I am a an occasional visiting preacher here. Um, And he asked me to jump in a few weeks ago uh, into the Romans series, and he said you can have Romans 8, 31 through 39. And if you can't get excited about preaching this passage, you're in the the wrong line of work, frankly. So it is, it's often been compared to a, a pinnacle, a peak of... The book of Romans, not only, but the the whole Bible, the gospel message. And I I do like that image of Paul as a a hiker in the mountains. And he's uh, walked a long, hard trail, started early in the morning. And he's very near the top now, and he pauses just before reaching the top. And he turns and looks back, and he can see the whole trail all the way back down to the parking area where he started out. So he climaxes this chapter and this section of Romans, and this incidentally is the last message in this series. I hope we'll pick it up again sometime next year maybe, Lord willing. Uh, So this is the last in in this section of Romans, Romans 5 through 8, and uh, he climaxes it with a series of rhetorical questions. Now a rhetorical question is not a test. It's not a question that you're asked where you might be stumped and you're supposed to kinda try to come up with the answer. A rhetorical question is a device in order to get us to pause and think. If there's one thing Paul wants us to do, it's to wrap our heads squarely around these gospel truths. So in a rhetorical question, the questioner, either the answer is obvious. Are we tired of the COVID? Yes, we are. Will we get through it? Yes, we will. Those are rhetorical questions. Or more often, the questioner will provide the answer, him or herself. So here Paul launches a series of rhetorical questions that revolve around the great subject of assurance. How can we be sure? What do we do when our faith is tested or challenged? Uh, What do we say? Primarily, to ourselves. He's asking us to stop, take a deep breath, as so often we've seen in Romans, He wants to begin by reminding us of what's gone before. He often does that with the word therefore. We've seen that repeatedly. Here he does it with a whole sentence. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, it's a rhetorical question. Stop and think. Think about all the things that I've been saying. Go all the way back to the beginning of Romans. What is Romans about? Romans is about the gospel And the gospel is about salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith from faith. Faith from first to last. That's what Romans is about. That could serve as a summary of the whole book. It's the gospel of salvation. Salvation from what? We might ask, salvation implies a kind of rescue, a kind of deliverance. If the doctor comes into the waiting room and says, we saved her, (laughs) you know what he's talking about. There was was danger there. And what we're saved from by the gospel, Paul says, is not just sin and its consequences, death. We're saved from the wrath of God. God. And he immediately goes on in 118 to say that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness people who deny God who turn away from the truth of God who then as a result involve themselves in every kind of wrong and evil and sinful practice and that that wrath is hanging over us there are a lot of people in the world today never mind the world a lot of people in the church today Dislike the idea of the wrath of God, and so they discard it. And if you do that, frankly, you don't have any gospel left, because the gospel is about how we are delivered from that. And so Paul will say in Romans 8 that uh, in Romans 5 verse 8, another famous verse. This, this verse is full of highlights. <laughs> this book. Uh, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then immediately he goes on to say, Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he lays it all out. Here's how it works. A different kind of righteousness, given by God, received through faith, which delivers us into a new life of the Spirit who helps us in our weakness who prays for us who uh, works with us and in us in the whole process of sanctification which is Paul's subject in chapters 6 through 8 and who assures us that we are God's beloved children sons and daughters of the almighty one so what do we say to this? And more specifically, what do we say to these things that he's just been talking about in the immediately preceding section? We saw it last week, the sufferings of this present age. We live in a fallen creation. Creation groans with all the after effects, all the distortions, all the brokenness that come in the wake of of the primal rebellion and rejection of the Creator. And we too groan as we're caught up in all this frustration and futility, a world where things don't work out the way we plan, the way we hope. Well, we wait in hope nevertheless because God has promised a glorious future. And as we wait, the Spirit prays within us and waits with us. God is with us in the midst of it all. So what do we say? What do we say to all of this? We hold on to Romans eight twenty-eight, That in all things, God is working for our good. Not all things are good. Not... The things themselves somehow work out for the best. But God is at work in the midst of all this for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And by the way, here's his purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many sisters and brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he glorified, justified he also glorified. That's the purpose of God. It's the three-tenses of salvation again, isn't it? Our salvation begins with God, with his foreknowledge, which is to say his predecision to love us. That's what foreknowledge is all about, it's about God's choosing to love. And he called us through the gospel, the outward call that invites us to receive Christ. And he called us inwardly by the power of the spirit to draw us to Christ in faith. And then he justified us. That's the past. And the future is glory. You may notice that Paul, a couple of odd things about that verse 30. He skipped sanctification, but I think he's already talked about that in Romans 8.28. In all things, God is working for our good. In all things. My, uh, my dad was a pastor. I don't know if you know that. Um, and I still remember a story he told. It was probably 45 years ago that I heard this story. He paid a, a call in the hospital on one of his parishioners a man with terminal cancer and he sat with him and they talked and my dad read scripture and prayed for this man and then he got up to leave and as he got to the door he turned to say goodbye and the man was lying in this bed holding out his arm with his fist clenched and my dad said, what are you doing? (laughs) And the man replied, I'm holding on to Romans Mm 8.28. Yeah, that's what we do. So what do we say then to all of this? And Paul will proceed then to answer that question, that rhetorical question, with a series of further rhetorical questions. And he's saying all this because he wants us to think about it. Get it fixed in our minds. The time to do that is now, friends, because when you're in the midst of it, when you're in some kind of crisis, when you are really suffering, you may not be able to think clearly. That's why you need to get, we, we need to get this straight now so we can hang on. <laughs> You know, hang on to that, Romans 8, 28. You may not even be able to pray sometimes, but that's when the Spirit prays in us and through us and for us. So Paul wants us to stop, take a deep breath, look back, and think about these things. And what he's going to do next is outline The four great threats to our assurance. The four big problems that we all experience to one degree or another that will upset our spiritual equilibrium, that will cause us to question, maybe even question our faith, certainly question our salvation, question God, they can rob us of assurance and what are they the first one is opposition he who did uh, what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us well the answer is lots of things can be against us lots of people can be against us opposition is real It was certainly real for Paul and for the first century Christians. It's real in our own culture, real in our own society. One of the the really uh, wonderful things about the Psalms is how they speak to us. And have you ever noticed how much there is in the Psalms about enemies and opponents and people attacking us and bad circumstances that are against us? Let me just... Riff on the Psalms for a minute or two. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise against me. Psalm 64, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. A lot of the opposition we face is verbal, isn't it? Psalm 3, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Mocking our faith, our belief in God. Psalm 35, malicious witnesses rise up. They, rape, they repay me evil for good. They gather together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Psalm 44, You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Ring a bell? That's the verse Paul quotes later on. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. Metaphorically, (laughs) at least, maybe literally. So what do we say to that? What we say is, if God is for us, what does that matter, really? In the last analysis, God is for us. A four-word summary of the gospel. God is for us. You remember the little story From uh, the book of 2 Kings, Elisha is hemmed in to a a place called Dothan with his servant, and the, the, uh, the Aramean army is surrounding them, and his servant is panicky and goes to him, and Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And he sees on the hills and the mountains chariots of fire, the army of the Lord the angelic host, and he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. If God is on our side, we can handle a little adversity, a little opposition. Once more from the Psalms, from Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Did you know that's where that verse comes from? We open our our worship with it every week. It's the end of Psalm 124, the Lord is on our side. Well, what then of the second problem that we might confront the fear of losing out somehow, or missing out. I learned um, the expression FOMO some years ago in connection with one of our little grandkids, (laughs) several of our little grandkids. You know FOMO? You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. It's especially prevalent among children. What are you doing? Can can I do that? What are you saying? What are you talking about? You know, (laughs) FOMO, it's real. And, you know, frankly, maybe Christianity is involved in in something like that. Maybe it means that we're going to miss out on all the really fun things to do, all the really enjoyable parts of life. Maybe we're called to a hard and lonely path of pilgrimage. Maybe discipleship will mean for us foregoing some things that other people can freely enjoy, but we can't for whatever reason. Fear of missing out. Maybe being a Christian is a little bit like chemotherapy. It may save your life, but it's no fun to live through. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) is that the case? No, says the apostle. Listen, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? God gave his son already for us. That's done. You think he's going to withhold any blessing, any happiness, any joy in the end that we could possibly experience? What He's given you a brand new house, but you can't have a garage. He's going to give you a beautiful new luxury car, but there are no floor mats in it. No, that would be too much. That's too much to expect. No, well, It's not too much. You know the old saying, you can't have everything? Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you will. Yes, we will. He will give us all things in Christ, with Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. Paul's just said it. All the riches of God are ours to inherit. There there will be no deprivation in the end. We will not miss out on anything of moment or importance. Do you know that, um, well, the famous screw tape letters Um, by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite passages from that. You you maybe have heard it quoted or you've remembered it yourself, where Screwtape is complaining about God. You know, it's our father below who's the real killjoy. There's no joy or happiness in in our kingdom below. But the enemy, as Screwtape calls God, the enemy, wow, it's ridiculous, All those crosses and stakes and vigils and fasts, those are just foam on the surface out at sea in the depths of his love. He makes no secret of it. It is all pleasure. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's a hedonist at heart, says Screwtape. He's all about pleasure. He's not a god of denial. The third thing that can rob us of our assurance is accusation, condemnation, the voice that we hear inside our heads all the time, the voice ultimately of the accuser himself, the voice that says, you're not worthy, you don't deserve this, you don't really belong to God. Look at what you are, look at what you've done. And see, the problem with the accuser is that he so often has truth on his side, doesn't he? He has evidence for the accusation. We hear it and we feel condemned. And the apostle urges us to remember <clears throat> that God has justified us. And therefore, no condemnation, whether it's self accusation, the attacks of other people, or the attacks of the enemy himself, no condemnation has any purchase upon us. There is therefore now no condemnation. Despite all the condemnation we hear, despite all the accusing voices, there is no condemnation. They don't have the right. Because the Lord Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, is incidentally the judge who will pass final sentence, and who is even now interceding for us. So the wonderful truths about prayer here in Romans 8, they'd make a whole sermon or two on their own. The Spirit is praying within us at the same time the Son is praying for us. If he were a human judge, he'd have to recuse himself from the case because he's prejudiced. He's on the side of the defendant. And he is the one who has the right to say, not guilty. There is no condemnation. There is no guilt. The guilt is done away, it's been paid for at the cross. And we are set free. So don't listen to the voice of the accuser, tell him where to get off. You know who was really good at that? Martin Luther. I love Martin Luther. (laughs) I may have read this before, but this is Luther's advice in a letter to a friend for how to deal with the devil's accusations. Christ died in order that those who belong to the devil may be released from his power. Therefore, do this spit on the devil and say, Have I sinned? Well, I have sinned, and I'm sorry. But I shall not despair, for Christ has taken away the sins of the whole world, of all who confess their sins. So be gone, devil, for I am absolved. <laughs> you must oppose him and not permit him to put thoughts in your mind. If you allow one thought to enter and you pay attention to it, he will force ten more in until he overpowers you. The best thing is to wrap the devil on the nose at the very start. Elsewhere, Luther says the best, the best thing to do with the with devil, or somebody says it, maybe Luther, maybe C.S. Lewis, one of those guys. <laughs> the best thing to do with the devil is laugh at him. He can't stand ridicule. So be gone, devil. I am righteous in Christ. No, not in myself. <laughs> Always something to confess. But no condemnation. And finally, this. What can rob us of our assurance is the very stuff of the the sufferings of this present age when we find ourselves afflicted or embroiled or maybe just fearful of what might happen. Tribulation, distress, danger, poverty, famine, Persecution, the sword. You you know that Paul was experiencing all those things. You know that when he wrote these words, what was still ahead of him was arrest, uh, a murder plot, shipwreck, two weeks without food, drifting in the storm on the sea, a, a bite from a poisonous snake, imprisonment, and trial on a capital charge in the city of Rome. All those things were, like sheep, were being delivered up to death day in and day out. See, we're not promised that none of those things can touch us. We, don't, we have assurance because none of that can happen to us. You know what? It, it can all happen. It does happen. But what it can't do is separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing Nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from that. So what do we say? (laughs) What do we say to these things? Well, hold on to Romans 8.28 for sure. Keep doing that. And maybe the best response in the end is the, the response that Paul will give Uh, really, to this hyper-conqueror idea. The best and final thing to say is what he says at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? How inscrutable are his ways. For from him and for him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, help us always to think straight, to think Christian, to think gospel, to think truth, and to hold on to your unshakable promises in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.